Hello, you're listening to The 30 Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in 30 minutes. Thank you so much for choosing to spend up to half an hour of your time listening today. This episode is designed to make you an expert on dementia. Almost two thirds of UK adults say they are worried about dementia in some way, and 61% are worried about either themselves or someone they know developing dementia in later life. Yet despite this, only 21% think they have a good knowledge of dementia. Here to help us push those numbers up a bit is Dr. Sarah Jane Smith, a reader at Leeds Beckett University's Centre of Dementia. Hello. Hello. Uh, Now, before we get into this, perhaps you could give us a brief overview of your career and expertise in this topic. Yep. So um, I am a reader in dementia. So that means that I basically research um, different types of dementia. I'm particularly interested in rarer forms of dementia. Um, and how we can support people to live well dementia. So that's the focus of, of my research. I um, did undergraduate and postgraduate research in dementia about 10 years ago, but basically became interested as I was a carer um, for people living with dementia. When I left school, um, one of my first jobs was as a support worker. So working both in a care home, but also working providing home care for people living with dementia. Um, And I was fascinated by the variation in people's experience who I'd been advised had a diagnosis of dementia. And in particular, I went to go and speak to one lady um, who had a diagnosis of frontal temporal dementia. And this lady had a particular language problem that she used to um, produce one word as part of her language. So she would refer to everything as this one specified word. Um, But I was advised at the time by her partner that she could understand everything that I was saying. Um, So the kind of frustration that must have been born out of that to understand, you know, what's what's being said to you, but not be able to give a coherent and understandable answer back was just incredible to me. So from that moment on, I just thought, yes, I want to understand more about, you know, what's happening in the brain um, that, that makes these changes occur. In its most simplistic terms, what is dementia? So dementia is a bit misleading as a term because it's actually a kind of umbrella term for lots of different types of diseases. So what we mean when we say someone has dementia is that they have an impairment in their thinking abilities significant enough to interfere with their everyday functioning. But there are actually lots of different diseases that come under that umbrella term. But some of those are extremely rare. Um, So dementia broadly can be characterised by changes in things like memory um, and language, um, attention and perception. Um, And lots of those different types of dementia are caused by changes that are happening in the brain. But they can also be influenced by things like a person's mood, um, changes in the person's health or disruptions in their social environment. Um, So when we think about dementia, often people actually think about a disease called Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common type of dementia. And Alzheimer's disease occurs in around kind of 60 to 70 percent of people living with dementia. Alzheimer's disease is typically characterized by that kind of what we the kind of stereotypical view of someone living with dementia, which is problems with their memory impairment. And in particular, problems remembering things that have happened recently Um, whereas people with Alzheimer's disease might be able to talk about things that happened in the past quite well. So changes to kind of recent memory functioning are one of the things that we think about when we think about someone living with dementia. So Alzheimer's is sort of the most recognisable and most common form. Are there any others that we should be aware of? 
Yep. So um, Alzheimer's disease, I say, is the most common form of dementia. Um, but that's closely or kind of nearly closely followed by something called vascular dementia. So Alzheimer's disease might affect around kind of 60 percent of the people living in the population, whereas vascular dementia affects around 20 percent of people living in the population. Following that, we might see something like mixed dementia, which can be a combination of any two types of dementia. So, for example, someone with a kind of Alzheimer's type disease combined with a vascular dementia. And then we see something like Lewy body dementia in around 5% of the population, um, frontal temporal dementia in about 2% of the population, um, and then other types of dementia are extremely rare. So the symptoms of vascular dementia as opposed to Alzheimer's, are they fairly close or is, would it have a very different effect on a person? It can be quite difficult sometimes to distinguish between types of dementia. Um, so many people who are experiencing memory problems like Alzheimer's disease tend to find that they have a gradual deterioration in their symptoms and abilities. So someone with living with Alzheimer's disease might, for example, find that they are forgetting things more frequently. They're having problems with things like finding the words um, for appropriate items. They're forgetting things like people's names. So they're the kind of things that typically characterize Alzheimer's disease. But the problems that people have generally decline quite slowly over a period of time. When we have an issue like vascular dementia, what we might see to help distinguish between these types of dementia is that people can function at a certain level. Then they might experience a kind of small vascular event in the brain, which means they decline quite rapidly over that period of time. So we see what we call a kind of stepwise decline, as opposed to that gradual decline that's a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. However, these changes are very subtle um, and often can't be distinguished that easily. Hence, when you have the, that kind of problem, going to a memory assessment service and getting those kind of problems assessed, including doing things like blood tests um, and taking um, images of the brain to try and distinguish between the types of dementia. What actually causes dementia from a physical point of view if you could see it on a scan or there was a visual representation what does it look like and, and what causes it so historically alzheimer's disease could only be diagnosed post-mortem so after someone's died we look at the brain and we see some changes that are characteristic of the changes that we know to be alzheimer's disease now, given recent kind of developments in neuroimaging techniques, some of those changes we can now see um, kind of live in a way. Um, so one of the things that we see in Alzheimer's disease is changes to a part of the brain called the temporal lobe. Now, our brain is made up of four different lobes. So we've got the frontal lobe at the front and we've got the parietal lobe kind of at the behind that at the top we've got the temporal lobe underneath and at the sides and we've got the occipital lobe at the back now one of the changes that we see in Alzheimer's disease is changes to a structure called the hippocampus which is hidden right in the middle of the temporal lobe and in Alzheimer's disease that part of the brain shrinks so on a scan of someone's brain you'll see a bigger gap between um the hippocampus and the rest of the temporal lobe where the hippocampus is essentially kind of shrunk. Now, over the years, what we've been able to do is associate changes in the hippocampus with symptoms that we see in people's everyday life, such that we now know that, that part of the brain is really important for things like memory, consolidating new memories, 
um, our language, our ability to understand language and express language, and also kind of crucially being able to kind of navigate in our space as well. So one of the things that we might see as well as problems with memory in Alzheimer's disease is people tending to get lost in different places and maybe getting lost in places that were previously familiar as well. So because we know that part of the brain is responsible for those functions, we can then make suggestions when someone's having problems with those kind of everyday abilities that that part of the brain might be affected. And these changes that actually happen to the brain, are they more prevalent in old age? Yes. So one of the um, risk factors um, for dementia, or the biggest risk factor for dementia, is old age. So we know that that's really important. And we know that as people age, they're more susceptible for developing Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia as well. So that is a big risk factor. But as we understand more about Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia, we know that actually quite a lot of those risk factors are modifiable and quite a lot of risk factors we can address through changes like lifestyle changes, um, particularly at middle age. You said that one of the sort of the, the tell signs is forgetting words and things like that. I mean, I am absolutely shocking at remembering most words whenever I need them at that moment. So can you reassure me with some of the other symptoms <laughs> of dementia sort of other than, than memory loss? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really difficult because obviously the more we talk about dementia, the more people are kind of hyper aware of their own functional abilities and therefore might be kind of self-critical of themselves. And it's e easy to do that. Um, but th the thing about all kinds of dementia is that the changes that you're experiencing need to be sufficient to interfere with your everyday life. With th something like Alzheimer's disease, aside from having kind of significant difficulties remembering things that have happened recently, you also will have the word finding difficulties. And then as dementia changes and progresses you might find difficulties with more things like for example um sequencing um remembering how to carry out tasks that you had done quite easily before um everyday difficulties like um kind of shopping um so those things that we take for granted do become significantly harder for people living with dementia is there any connection between other traumatic incidences or traumatic medical interventions like strokes? Yes, yeah. So I think one of the things we've got to think about with um, vascular dementia is that our vascular health is very important. And um, something like having a stroke can contribute to, our, to the person's vascular dementia. So vascular dementia is something that happens when there are essentially kind of um, cerebral events in the brain. Um, and in vascular dementia, as opposed to something like Alzheimer's disease, any part of the brain can be affected. So in Alzheimer's disease, we typically see a pattern of impairment where um, everyday functions associated with the temporal lobe and the hippocampus, like memory, um, language, orientation in space and time are affected. Whereas in vascular dementia, because that cerebral event can happen anywhere in the brain, any function can be can be affected essentially um, so you might not see that typical um, kind of hallmark of it being a memory impairment you might find that someone for example has difficulty um, with what we call sequencing so kind of getting dressed in the morning um, or difficulties with um, judging things like depth depth perception 
because the back part of our brain called the occipital lobe is important for understanding how our body works in, in, in space, essentially. Um, so you'll see a pattern that's very different. So um, outside, so dementia is by no means just associated with memory impairment. I already got a sense from you at the beginning uh, of our conversation that sometimes labelling things isn't necessarily as clear as as it can be because it's such a broad spectrum. Um, I've read something about the different stages of dementia. Is that something that you would agree with or do you think it is? Is it less black and white? I would be of the opinion um, that it's maybe unhelpful to use the terms staging um, as applied to dementia. What we know about dementia is that one experience, one person's experience of dementia is one person's experience. Um, and sometimes it can be unhelpful for the person themselves that's been diagnosed and for people that might be um, kind of caring or family members of someone living with dementia to refer to stages. Although historically, that certainly was what happened. Um, to give an example of this, when we think about the kind of changes that are happening in someone's brain, um, we might see, for example, a 50 year old person living with Alzheimer's disease um, has a kind of significant degree of hippocampal shrinkage and maybe some kind of plaques and tangles. So some protein deposits in the brain. Um, we could see that exact same pattern of disease in another person's brain, but they may not have the same level of impairment. Um, and this is due to a variety of reasons. So we know that the experience of someone living with dementia isn't just about the disease. It's about the life that they've lived and about the kind of support that they have around them. So over time, um, and certainly in recent years, we've moved away from what we might call a kind of medical model of dementia that's very much focused on the disease and the changes that we see that happen associated with the disease towards the more kind of biopsychosocial model of dementia. And this takes into account those other factors that might be influencing a person's expression of their symptoms. So even though person A might have the same disease profile as person B, if person A, for example, had a much higher level of education, um, over time we know they might have built up what we call more cognitive reserve, which means they can almost kind of circumvent um, the issues that they're having because they're drawing on that cognitive reserve. So they may, may not be expressing as high a level, for example, of memory impairment or language impairment as person B, who might not have higher levels of cognitive reserve. So that's just one example of how the kind of social influence might have be affecting that person's um, experience of the disease. That's fascinating. So it, you're, the way that it can affect you is almost experiential. Yes, yes. And a biopsychosocial model is really helpful to draw on that. So that's kind of compartmentalising the um, influence of the kind of biological changes in the brain, um, the psychological experience that the person has. So, for example, a person's kind of um, mood um, and their, their general kind of mental health and then the kind of social experience that a person has as well. So things that might have happened to them along their life, 
Um, but also the current social environment that someone's in. Someone can be in a very, for example, stimulating environment that's helping them to think regularly. That person's getting much more cognitive exercise than a person that is in a more kind of maybe impoverished environment without as many social connections. So we know that the picture is much more complex. And it's that kind of complex picture that contributes to a person's lived experience of the disease. But without trying to oversimplify it, it shows there really is some benefit in, in keeping busy, as it were. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, this might be an opportunity uh, to, to bust a myth. Um, can a person with dementia sense it or is it like a sliding scale that you might sense in the beginning and then not as it progresses? Yes. I mean, it, that that's a very interesting and complex picture in itself. So we we consider insight to be very important. And as you said, when a person starts to have memory changes, often their insight um, will be very good and a person will be very aware of those memory changes. Um, now, that can be really helpful and important because we know that someone that's more aware of the changes that are happening to them are more able to develop strategies that might compensate for those changes. So if a person knows they're becoming forgetful, for example, um, they might always make a point of remembering to take a shopping list with them when they go to the shops. So that's a very kind of simple example of a memory strategy. Um, now, as dementia progresses, one of the things that might happen is an area of the brain called the frontal lobes might become affected. And the frontal lobes of the brain, as it's suggested, are at the front of the brain, um, are responsible for that insight. Um, and when we start to have changes to that part of the brain, our ability to have insight into our functioning as a whole becomes impaired. So because of the neuropsychological changes, we might not actually be able to implement strategies and compensate for the changes that we have. Um, and when that happens, a person might become unaware that they actually have a diagnosis, for example, of dementia. So then it can be very hard, for example, to develop interventions and it can become as well harder for a person to support the person living with dementia. Um, that being said, some people who have provided care for a person with dementia over time can actually find that quite reassuring as well um, because it can actually reduce some of the distress that can happen as a consequence of being aware that you're losing some of the abilities that you had before. So it's a double-edged sword, really. Is it hereditary? Um, so again, the, the picture um, for the genetic predisposition to dementia um, is, is more complicated. If we take Alzheimer's disease, for example, um, in recent years, there has been a genetic component identified that can make people more susceptible um, to developing Alzheimer's disease. So this is called um, the APIO um, gene. So people, we, we know the age is obviously a significant risk factor. And for people carrying that gene, there might be a more, um, they might have more of a predisposition um, to developing dementia. But that's not to say if you have that gene, you're definitely going to develop Alzheimer's disease. So it's a combination of having that 
genetic background and all of those other risk factors in combination that might express itself in Alzheimer's disease. That being said, you can develop a kind of Alzheimer's disease without having that gene as well. So the picture is very, very complicated. Um, there are people who carry a different profile of, of genes that can be much more susceptible to Alzheimer's disease. So we might have heard of kind of families um, who, who have all kind of, you know, multiple generations who have developed Alzheimer's disease. When that happens, that tends to be people who are developing Alzheimer's disease um, younger, so what we call kind of young onset Alzheimer's disease, as opposed to that kind of um, more common profile of people who develop Alzheimer's disease um, as, they, as they get older. What, what treatment is available for dementia and is there any chance of recovery? So unfortunately, at the moment, for the kind of pharmacological treatments for dementia, they um, don't reverse the disease. They tend to slow down the decline of, decline of the disease. So at this present time, there isn't any medication that you can take that will reverse the changes that have happened associated with, with dementia. The medications that are available um, have mixed efficacy at this point. There is obviously a lot of research happening looking at developing drugs that target different features of the disease in the brain. Um, at the moment, there are kind of four different drugs that are available. The most common one being Dinepazil, um, which is prescribed for people who have just had a diagnosis of dementia. That is available in the UK at the moment. And one of the challenges with um, prescribing that kind of medication is that you can't say how effective it's going to be individual across individual. So it's, it's, it's a very mixed bag. And does dementia affect life expectancy? So very recently, there's been some data that's come out in the UK to say that dementia is now the leading cause of death for older people. So um, certainly dementia um, has an impact on, on life expectancy and there are lots of people um, dying with dementia. Um, people often die from complications of, of dementia. So issues like um, pneumonia that might happen much later on in the disease. It's very difficult to put a number on life expectancy once you have a diagnosis of dementia because every individual is so different. Um, but what we do know is one of the challenges in treating um, later onset um, Alzheimer's disease is that the end of life care trajectory is very different from other diseases like, for example, cancer. It's very difficult to say when someone is coming to end of life with Alzheimer's disease. The disease is not, not just limited to influencing cognitive you know, factors, thinking abilities. What we see is a person's mobility is reduced, a person's ability to kind of eat and swallow um, can be reduced. So it's through those kinds of physical changes that are influenced by the degeneration in the brain that end of life occurs. How does one reduce the risk of developing dementia? OK, so this as a cognitive psychologist, this is a, an exciting question for me. Um, <laughs> what's happened um, in the last, I say, kind of 10 years um, to progress our understanding of how we can um, improve our cognitive health, our thinking abilities, um, and therefore modify our risk for developing dementia. 
And certainly there's all kinds of things that we know we can do in terms of cognitive health and thinking abilities um, to improve the efficacy of our brain and the extent to which our neurotransmitters fire um, and therefore build up what we call cognitive reserve. Um, so that you might have seen lots of apps, for example, on, on the market that you can play and then guess your brain age. Um, whilst they're quite gimmicky, <laughs> there's some evidence behind them to say um, they can be quite effective. So those kind of activities that stimulate the part of the brain called the hippocampus that I mentioned earlier um, can be really helpful to build up our capacity and cognitive reserve so that if disease does affect our brain at later life, we can draw on the parts that we've built up to try and protect and mitigate against those changes. So anything that kind of engages things like language, um, things like kind of navigation and our ability to orientate in time and space, memory, are all good things that we can be doing to improve our, uh, kind of re reduce our risk factor for dementia in, in later life. Um, for example, we know that people that are bilingual um, again, uh, protected against experiencing the symptoms of something like um, dementia, specifically Alzheimer's disease, which is really exciting. Um, given that vascular dementia is often implicated in dementia in later life and vascular changes can cause problems with language and memory, but also other thinking abilities and cognitive functions, anything that we can do to improve our vascular health will have a positive impact um, and will reduce risk for, for dementia and later life. And all kinds of things can be helpful for that. For example, improve nutrition, improve levels of exercise, reducing sedentary behaviour, all of the things that everyone's telling us to do all the time anyway. Is there anything else that an expert should know? Yes. I mean, thinking about the kind of negative, positive balance um, when we're talking about dementia, um, a lot of work that certainly I'm involved in is very positive at the moment, I have to say. So a lot of the work that we do within the centre is about improving um, services and support and facilities for people living with dementia from the point of diagnosis to the point of end of life, as we've talked about. Um, and in the kind of 10 to 15 years that I've been working with people living with dementia, um, my experience has on the whole been very positive. <laughs> and I think one of the things we'd like to talk about is the work that's been done to give a voice to people living with dementia to improve people's quality of life. Um, so there's lots that we can do to rethink how we frame dementia in society. Um, so I think lots of historically, lots of the ways in which dementia has been presented in the media has been aligned to that kind of biomedical model and the perception that um, dementia is a, is a disease that's very hopeless. Um, Whereas a lot of my experience working with people with dementia has been about how we can change as a society to support the needs of people living with dementia to help people to live well. So, for example, there are things that we can do just in our own communities to meet the needs of people with dementia, to reduce the impact that the disease is having on their everyday lives. And I don't think we can really underestimate that. So you may have heard of initiatives like the Dementia Friends Initiatives, 
from the Alzheimer's Society, which is about how we can change our businesses um, to support people living with dementia, for example, having shopping hours that are dedicated to people with dementia, but also things like, you know, transport, how we can improve things like timetabling. And you can imagine if you're living with um, a diagnosis of dementia and you look at a train timetable, for example, how difficult that can be to interpret sometimes with the numbers and the information that's quite overwhelming. So I think that there's an onus on us to kind of work as a society to think how we can improve the way we communicate with people living with dementia um, and change our services just to help people to live well, which will mitigate the experience that they're having such that, you know, their experience of dementia will be very much reduced. You've been working on a website to host free learning materials for health and social care staff or people supporting uh, people living with dementia they might find helpful in light of the COVID-19 crisis. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So as a team, we work mainly to develop um, services and interventions that are helpful for people supporting people living with dementia. So that might be people in the community or people in health and social care services. We know at the time of this kind of COVID crisis um, that providing education and training um, can be particularly difficult. So we have hosted some of the resources that we've developed as a centre on the website that are freely available to download for anyone who has an interest. The link to view those is on the 30 Minute Expert Facebook page and it is freedementiatraining.wordpress.com. Dr. Sarah Jane Smith, a reader at Leeds Beckett University's Centre of Dementia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the 30 Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in 30 minutes. You can get information on new episodes uh, on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search 30 Minute Expert. That's three zero minute expert. And you can also suggest topics for future podcasts. Just let me know what you'd like to become an expert at in half an hour or less.